Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Colin Hill. He's the co-founder and CEO of ATIA. The company was founded back in 2000 and previously known as GNS Healthcare. The GNS part was short for Gene Network Sciences, which gives you some sense of what it was about. ATIA is a new name to reflect a new strategy. The company has undergone a big shift in the past year to focus on drug discovery and early development of its own novel medicines. ATIA is seeking to leverage deep wells of genomic, proteomic, and other omic datasets. When the data can be extracted from human samples, it creates what ATIA calls a digital twin. And it believes this type of human data will shed light on the complex networks of biology that sometimes go awry and lead to disease. For many years, Colin and his colleagues worked with partners, both large pharma companies and with healthcare payers, that sought to discover some useful insights in those large data sets for themselves. ATIA wasn't seeking to discover drugs on its own and move them along in early development and create value that way. Now it is. Colin came to this work with a background in math and physics, first at Virginia Tech and then at Cornell University. He took the entrepreneurial leap a little over 20 years ago at a time when the genomics boom and the first internet.com boom were on. He's seen fluctuations in the hype cycle and found ways to adapt the company so it could keep going. Over time, Colin and the ATIA team obtained access to more datasets and kept honing causal AI algorithms which seek to predict disease and tell us what's going wrong mechanistically that is causing the disease. The proof, like everything in biotech, will ultimately be in the clinical data. But it has secured drug discovery partnerships this year with UCB and a second follow-on partnership with Servier. Now, before we get started, if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions provide a license to companies that have more than one reader, and you can get a discount that way. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on this podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Now, please join me and Colin Hill on the long run. Colin Hill, it's great to speak with you. Welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. Great to be here. So um, I really want to dig into uh, your work, your life's work, really, in personalized medicine. Um, You've been working on this for uh, 20 plus years and seen a lot. Uh, So I think you've got some great stories to tell. But uh, let's just start off with a little bit about you and how you came to this work. Um, All the way back to the beginning, where did you grow up? 
So I grew up in Ontario, Canada, born in Toronto and grew up in smaller cities west of there, Oakville, Ontario, Sarnia, Ontario, right on the border with uh, Michigan, and then uh, London, Ontario, where I left home at 16 to live at a tennis academy in London, and I uh, finished high school there. Wow. Well, okay. So how did your family end up in uh, in Canada? Yep. So my parents are from Antigua in the Caribbean, and they came to Canada in the late 60s or so, uh, first to Montreal and then to Toronto. And, you know, Antigua is a great place, especially in the winter, but it's a small little island nation of 70,000 people. So not a lot of opportunity to, to, to do things. And so my parents braved the cold and came up to Canada. Uh, Antigua was, is a British colony. And so Canada was a little bit in between America and, uh, and Britain. And so that's where they, that's where they ended up. So that's why I, uh, that's why I was born there and grew up there. Okay. So they're immigrants. And so what kind of, uh, uh, experience did you have growing up in, uh, in Ontario? Uh, it was a great place to grow up. Very, Safe, you know, typical childhood. An older brother, younger sister was uh, always pretty, pretty active into lots of sports, soccer, and then ultimately tennis. And tennis became a a big passion. Um, But ultimately, I was also really into math and science and philosophy and the big questions about why we're here and how things work. And, you know, surprise, surprise, I was a a big science nerd as a kid, but also pretty active and, you know, being out and about in the community and playing sports and whatnot. How did you get hooked on math and physics? Um, uh, Supposedly my grandfather, my father's father uh, taught me math when I was three years old. I don't really remember that, but that's, that's the story as to why I was very advanced in math from a young age. And I was just very curious, very curious kid. I'm a curious 50-year-old now, too. And I was curious about how the world works and how very specific things work. And that led me to be interested in chemistry and math and ultimately physics, And but really driven by the deep questions, like why, why is anything here? Why is life here? How do living things work? Um. Where did these laws of nature come from and such? So that was kind of a constant part of how I grew up. And that never, never really left me. You ended up going to graduate school at Cornell in physics. Um, What what kind of work obsessed you in those years? Now, this would have been the 90s, I guess. Yes. Started at Cornell in 97. And... It was really the complex systems bug or the AI applied to biological networks, to to genomics. That actually happened before I went to grad school at Cornell. The obsession with chaos theory and complex systems and self-organization started actually at at the end of undergrad. So at Virginia Tech, where I went to school to play tennis, so I left Canada to play tennis at Virginia Tech and study engineering that um, that ended up turning into a more of a focus in physics. And I did some undergrad research and published uh, some work in non-equilibrium 
phase transition. So the area within statistical physics that was still emerging, where the laws of entropy, maximization, and energy minimization don't apply to figuring out how systems are going to behave. And that led to my interest in the applications of this kind of uh, complex systems physics and computing to biological networks and gene networks. And I went to work for Stu Kaufman at the Santa Fe Institute in 96. He was one of the fathers of mathematical biology and chaos theory. And that's when I started applying the tools of statistical physics to gene networks, uh, building on some work he that Stu Kaufman had initiated back in the late 60s and 70s. And so, um, and then after a stint at McGill in Montreal, by the time I got to Cornell, I was pretty steeped in this rather strange world of theoretical biology and systems biology and the like. And at Cornell, I was starting off with a focus in more traditional non-equilibrium statistical physics and solid state physics. But uh, after being invited to give a talk near Barcelona, Spain and Sicha, Spain in 98, that's when the connection of this prior work I was doing in um, math models, computer models of gene regulatory networks uh, started to intersect with what was happening in the world of genomics. Uh, uh, the genomic revolution was well underway. DNA chips had been invented. And so it was starting to put this theoretical biology work into context with then the big idea being could we marry the two together? Could this kind of paradigm of creating computer models of the interactions of signaling pathways and gene expression networks that control the behavior of cells and disease, could that be married with the, the new mountains of data that were going to be coming both at the DNA sequence level and then the measurement of the activity of all the genes at the same time versus the one-by-one one that RT-PCR provided in the past. And of course, this was all happening under a backdrop of, of advances in large-scale supercomputing driven by Moore's Law. And so it was in 1998 that the big idea that led to GNS, now ATIA, was formed. Uh, really, the idea that could we now use... Um, uh, these large quantities of genetic and genomic data with clinical outcomes to start to reverse engineer the underlying hidden circuitry of disease. Because if we could do this, it was going to change everything. And um, while, you know, in the late 90s, there was in the early 2000s, there was a race heating up on the genomics end and bioinformatics side to now map the whole genome and to discover novel targets for various cancers and Alzheimer's and lots of diseases. What was clearly then missing from my perspective was a systems view and a systems approach to the process. Um, and that's really where the idea of, okay, could we now launch a company to take the, to really marry this kind of theoretical gene network modeling uh, approach that I'd been doing for a few years based on work of people like Stuart Kaufman and Leon Glass and others. Could we now marry this idea of systems biology and biosimulation to the emerging world of genomics and genetics and early applications of AI to now help to reverse engineer the hidden 
circuitry of human disease, that that hidden no. 95%. This is really early days. We're talking, this is even before that first draft of the Human Genome Project was complete. Um, and, you know, computers were n- nothing like they are today. Um, do, do you ever sometimes think you were maybe a little too far ahead of your time? Uh, looking back, uh, yeah, uh, for sure. But but at the time, it felt like the race was on. The dot com boom was 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 really in its at its height, and and then soon after the dot com boom, when companies like Amazon and and others and Google were 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 born, was this genomics revolution. So companies like Millennium Pharmaceuticals here in Cambridge. And gene logic and line biosciences and insight were now making these waves uh, uh, based on the generation and an interpretation of genomic data and the promise that this book of life was going to lead to new cures for all sorts of diseases. So, from my perspective as a PhD student at in the physics department. In uh, in the woods of Ithaca, New York, a, 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 where where Cornell was, um, I felt like, boy, we were we we were maybe behind. That all these companies uh, that were raising all this money and these companies were doing deals in the hundreds of millions of dollars with big pharma around the discovery of novel targets. So at the time, um, our view was we had to hurry up and get on with it because the race was on. And to the point that I left um, uh, the PhD program at Cornell, I was in the last year of it. I'd done most of, uh, completed most of the research. And then the person who became the co-founder of the company, Ali Khalil, we were friends in grad school. And so the two of us, along with some other friends, launched this company. And we, we really didn't know what we were doing in terms of forming a company, but we knew the science. And um, as I said, I, I was was convinced the race had started, and we were behind, and so we uh, we we jumped in uh, with both feet. Colin, you're you're coming toward the end of your time in graduate school in physics at Cornell. You obviously could have done a lot of different things with this background in math and physics, making you know, creating predictive models. I, I imagine you probably had classmates doing you know, theoretical physics in academia or, you know, maybe going off to Wall Street or management consulting, you probably could have made a lot of money <laughs> doing something else. Uh, what was it that really wanted you to, made you want to become an entrepreneur? Look, it's it's a great question. And yes, that's exactly where my fellow grad students were going. They were going to places like Goldman Sachs, uh, the person who would have been the uh, the uh, the obvious other co-founder of the company because we were doing research in this field together uh, went to Goldman Sachs. Uh, a bunch went to McKinsey. The um, why why start a company? I mean, one is I saw the best and brightest going off to Wall Street or consulting um, because they didn't want to take the vow of poverty and do postdocs here, there, and everywhere in in, in physics. So that was one, but. But number two, you know, and I would have been happy to stay and do this in academia, but it was also rather clear that things moved pretty slowly in academia. And to build this, to build what we needed, it was it seemed clear to me we needed to raise money to attract and keep the best and brightest in this uh, in this area. And we had to build stuff. We had to build stuff that 
software and technology that was probably not going to be easy to be done with government grants and on academic timescales. And don't forget, this was the height of the dot-com uh, boom and then the following genomics boom. And while Ithaca, New York was neither Silicon Valley where Stanford was housed and it wasn't the Harvard, MIT enclave of Kendall Square, Cambridge or Harvard Square, um, you know, Ithaca, Cornell was was in the boonies, but still the um, the the uh, the excitement around what was possible with the with the efforts of the dot com world and genomics were were very clear to me, and it seemed like uh, starting a company, becoming an entrepreneur was the was the best path to execute this big vision. Um, and I knew that I did want to have real impact in the world, that I didn't want to just keep doing theoretical biology and this theoretical physics applied to biology. There was the so what question and the the so what even from the point of view of my mother, right? Um, is, you know, could this matter? Could this matter not theoretically 50 years from now, but could this matter now? in impacting people with disease. And I was convinced it could. And seeing one of my advisors develop lung cancer in her early 40s, the first female professor of physics at Cornell, and I'll never forget being at her funeral and seeing Nobel Prize winner after Nobel Prize winner walk in. And, you know, the mandate of physics is to be able to understand everything from the smallest to the small to the biggest to the big and everything in between, both theoretically and experimentally. And we we happen to sidestep living things. We say, oh, that's a living thing. That's biology. We don't need to touch that. And the question is, well, why not? Why can't the tools of complex systems physics, so statistical physics out of equilibrium, apply to living systems and figure out how genes and proteins interact to to cause the self-organization of cells and disease. And until, that was the connection. Until this point, you know, around the turn of the 21st century, we didn't really have the tools to collect, to even generate a lot of this data, the omic data, genes, proteins, metabolites, all these things that contribute to the system. Um, so you're looking at this and thinking, Okay, we're going to fill in a lot of the blanks here. We're collecting tons and tons of data. It's going to, and computing is getting better, faster, cheaper. Uh, so there's a, you can imagine a path forward in which you uh, really fill in this map of uh, the, the human biological systems. That's right. Um, that's right. It was clear. I mean, while the data was still emerging, right, the technologies had just been invented that could now do high-speed, uh, large-scale DNA sequencing, you know, thanks to people like Lee Hood and thanks to even another grad student um, uh, at a Cornell named Steve Turner, who started uh, PacBio, it was still, um, it was clear what the trajectory, where the trajectory was taking us. And the opportunity to now be able to turn that data into filling in the map of the system um, was, it was palpable. And having spent a lot of time in grad school um, making models based on the literature on the small number of systems we understood, like the cell cycle, like circadian rhythms, like apoptosis, like various metabolic pathways, 
it was clear that that was just simply not going to cut it and that we needed to think bigger and and really approach this in a hypothesis-free way because we were estimating that the total amount of circuitry known was maybe 5%. And so all these efforts to discover new drugs and figure out who they work for based on such a fragmented uh, knowledge of our system seemed uh, eventually like that was just never going to work. So the big question was, can we infer? This is where AI comes in. Can we use, is there an AI framework out there that would allow us to reverse engineer that circuitry, the actual mechanisms straight from the data, straight from multiomic data? That was the question because we were very systems thinking. And that's how we stumbled upon causal learning and causal AI. And so while the Silicon Valley folks of consumer internet were gaga over deep learning and natural language processing and the like, and that can work well in those worlds, that was not the right kind of AI to solve the grand challenge of, of, of biodiscovery in the post-genomic age. And so that's how we, we happened upon causal AI as a way to really marry AI with modeling and simulation. So you started the company. Uh, you worked up the gumption. You and Aya got started. Um, what were the biggest challenges in, say, the first, I don't know, five or 10 years? Wow. Um, first off was raising money. And we were, look, we were PhD students in theoretical physics coming out of Cornell. It, um, the, we, the, we operated the company for the first six years in Ithaca, New York. Not a robust venture capital community in Ithaca, New York, um, to say the least. And we certainly um, we were kind of brand new babies at this. We didn't uh, we didn't know what we didn't know. So the first challenges were you know raising money. We raised some money from angels, friends, and family. We then started um, applying for and winning a number of government grants. So for for the first number of years, we probably brought in more money from government grants than we did revenue from uh, pharma partnerships or our equity money from investors. Yeah. And, and, and then one of the big questions was, well, what's the business model? We were very clear on the science we were going to build. It was very clear. We didn't have the data while the data was coming. That data was very slow to come. The supercomputing power was advancing nicely, but then we also had to figure out, what were we were we going to sell, right? We were we weren't at the beginning, kind of with the view that we were going to use this technology to make drugs ourselves. I mean, that was one of the thoughts, but that seemed like a pretty far stretch. We also did, weren't really convinced that we wanted to be a software company. We wanted to be involved in the science. We needed to be involved in the science. The science was very very new, and so the challenges were. I think one, it was access to data, and two, it was access to computing power, and I'd say three, it was really figuring out the business model and what was going to work, and how did we partner with pharma, bringing something that was so new and so cutting edge to a community that was, I would say, pretty traditional when it comes to math and computing and data. So we were always the strange. People, right? We were the, the we were the biotech folks that looked like we had two heads. Why would anyone want to use AI and math and data to try to solve these problems? And so um, those were, I'd say, the big early challenges. 
Uh, all this in silico drug discovery. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so modeling, but we didn't really have complete models, as you say, of, uh, of the networks or even a full cell. Um, so you're going with what you had, this call it partial data set, I guess. Um, you had this AI system, which was, which was yours. Um, and it was focused on what causes disease, figuring out the causality rather than just um, happenstance or correlations. Um, what, can you talk a little bit about what you were building and, and why you thought that would be useful? Yes. So we were building really the, 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 the world's first causal inference engine because we knew, we absolutely knew how to model and simulate large complex systems. That's where we came from. That's where we grew up within the Cornell computational physics uh, uh, department. Um, but here we didn't have the blueprint. We didn't have the equations to simulate. We didn't know how the genes were connected to each other and connected to various gene products and the clinical outcomes. And so therefore we realized that we needed to, to build a machine that could help to infer that circuitry. We needed to build a machine that could that could infer straight from this emerging genetic and genomic data how all of these genes were connected to each other. Because once we had that map, once we figured out how they were connected, we very much knew how we could simulate these systems and run virtual experiments, knocking down each and every gene, essentially the equivalent of siRNA or CRISPR knockdowns. And we knew we could simulate a drug ahead of a clinical trial and understand how that drug was working and who it was going to work for. But the missing piece was, could we infer that circuitry? Could we build models of, of, of interactions that no one else knew? And so we spent many years, over a decade, building this machine and then scaling it to work on bigger and bigger scales because it, 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 was, a, it was a platform that um, scaled badly with the number of variables. And so as we went from SNP chips with 50,000 components to ones with 250,000 components to whole genome sequencing, and this was now getting combined with gene expression profiles and clinical outcomes, we had to keep pushing the scale both al algorithmically and through the use of supercomputers. And so that's the core kind of secret sauce and the, the, the core technology of ATIA that allows us to do things that no one else can do, and namely building digital twins from now directly from human multiomic data. Well, we'll get there in a second about how you've repositioned the company, but I want to ask a little bit about um, how you kept the lights on in these years when, um, I mean, you were talking with pharma companies about drug discovery, and you did a number of partnerships on these um, uh this preclinical work, um, but what kind of uh, results did the customers get, and and how were you able to uh, uh, you know get enough revenue in to to keep the whole thing going? Sure. So we were we were doing partnerships where we were building these models to discover novel drug targets, to even um, um, prioritize novel drug targets, to simulate. Uh, preclinical or clinical stage drug candidates to better predict optimal combo therapies, to predict talks, 
uh, to to simulate clinical trials ahead of time to now drive the design of trials in terms of better inclusion exclusion for responders versus non-responders. And we're doing this across a number of diseases, cancers, neuro diseases, cardiometabolic diseases, immunology. And so we were able to get enough of these projects, pilot projects, proof of concept deals. Sometimes these were now getting larger. And then we we started to even productize our core technology and we started to license the technology out to biopharma. So this is how we kept the lights on revenue-wise. And then we were very lucky to have a set of very patient investors, family offices, angel investors in the very early days. And then what became more institutional investors, but mainly corporate strategics, both on the payer side, uh, such as Cambier Echo Health Ventures and Cigna, as well as biopharma investors such as Amgen, BMS, and Merck. and this really allowed the company to see this very big, big transformative vision through to where we are today. And, and Luke, looking back in retrospect, we did start the company too early. We started the company 10 to 15 years too early. The data on the scale we wanted and needed and the data straight from humans versus animal models or cell lines or iPSC cells it was just not there the first 10 years. And I would say it wasn't there the first 15 years. It probably, like back in 2015, we could probably count on two, two hands the number of data sets that were large enough in terms of number of patients, which for us is around three, 400 is the minimum number, but where there was multi-omic um, uh, profiling, meaning both sequence and uh, gene expression and or proteomics and clinical outcomes, and so the data was few and far between, but it was those early large-scale multi-omic data sets from groups like Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, from Global Genomics Group, and others that uh, from the Cure Huntington's Disease Initiative that made clear to us that this did indeed work when the data was sufficiently rich and multi-layered and across a large enough number of patients. But it was still going to be a number of years where... There was we where we really had the data with on a critical mass of diseases. There was and, such a effort to hoover up all these different kinds of data, the biological kind that you referenced there, but also that you know the genotype through phenotype, it, marrying in the electronic health records and <laughs> what's in there uh, that's either structured or unstructured, and how does that line up with uh, what? we're seeing happen at the underlying biological system. I mean, this was just sounds like a whole lot of work, especially with these different data types that are not really meant to play well with each other in the sandbox. Um, that's right. I mean, one, it was, is trying to get a hold of enough data, uh, which was always a challenge and it was never enough. And, and the quality of the data was in those early days, very poor. And then of course the efforts to integrate the data across these different modalities we have to become very deep experts in that, which 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 we 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 did become, and this was all before the application of the AI technology and the simulation platform to these systems. So there was a lot of what we call data munging that had to take place before we were even set up 
to um, to now apply the technology. To That's so you don't it. suffer from the garbage in, garbage out problem. You, you there you to, go. You, you need to start with uh, quality data that's integrated well before you can really do these serious network analyses that you wanted to do to get the right drug to the right patient at the right time. Real predictive value. That's right. Okay. So you mentioned a couple examples, I think, where you started um, making progress. Uh, multiple myeloma was one. Huntington's was another. What was it? A, can, can you start with multiple myeloma and what you're able to do there that uh, produced kind of an aha moment? Sure. So the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation launched the COMPASS study now going back eight, nine years or so. And this was the first of its kind, a longitudinal study doing multiomic profiling from patient tissue, right? And this is roughly 1,100 patients recruited into this study. And this rich multi-layer data, when put through our causal AI and simulation platform called REFS, was able to now reverse engineer models that could answer questions that we couldn't answer any other ways, such as what are uh, the, 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 the genes that are indicating specific high-risk subtypes? of multiple myeloma. Um, and one actual uh, specific application that was very interesting, especially with its validation, was answering the question of which patients will respond or not respond to stem cell transplant. Because this is a very um, invasive type of treatment. It's also very expensive at four or $500,000 per, and there's a fair bit of side effects. And uh, patients would rather not um, have a stem cell transplant unless it, they know it's going to work. And so we use this data to build a, now a, a computer model, a digital twin in multiple myeloma that revealed the, the, it was the led to the discovery of now three gene expression uh, uh, um, uh, 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 components that were now predictive of who is going to respond and not respond to stem cell transplant with roughly a 20-month progression-free survival benefit. So this was a really big deal that we made this prediction. We then went to a group at Dana-Farber that was happened to be running a clinical trial where patients were being randomized for stem cell transplant, and they were collecting gene expression data. So we showed them the result. They agreed to unblind it. And lo and behold, it validated our discovery of this almost two years of survival benefit that came in a completely hypothesis-free, data-driven um, approach uh, here. And so this kind of um, post hoc validation was really the closest thing we had at the time to, you know, to really a, a, a prospective sort of clinical trial. And so that was a big deal for us and our partners. And then we're able to follow up those kinds of discoveries and validations really at a faster and faster clip. And that was, I think, very much being driven by further advances into our own technology platform, running on bigger and bigger supercomputers, but then, of course, bigger and richer multiomic human data. If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timberman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. 
group subscriptions provide a license to companies who have more than one reader. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on this podcast or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. You made an accurate prediction and that prediction could uh, be used uh, in in, uh, treatment of patients to um, well save them and the system some time and money and heartache on treat a, a, a type of treatment that you know probably wouldn't work. That's right, and get them to a treatment that would work. So it's also lives being saved with these kinds of discoveries. And so that was one of the first big examples of that in our application. But then it was followed up on in a number of diseases, Alzheimer's. Huntington's cardiovascular disease, in particular, atherosclerotic disease. And and so I think one of the hallmarks of the company was we were more focused on doing the work and proving the science and validating it. I would say that ATIAD was less caught up in some of the hype cycles that were occurring as, as sort of AI and data-driven methods were starting to become more popular here. And whether it was to our, sometimes to our detriment, sometimes to our benefit, but we've continued to kind of keep our heads down, toiling away in the, in the coal mine, so to speak, to really validate and prove to ourselves first and foremost, and then to our partners that these approaches actually could solve the big, big problems. And I think that's that um, approach and that culture has served us well. You focused on the science. And you've worked with partners who um, may use that, whether if you're a biopharma company, to guide drug discovery or clinical trial um, selection of patients who are likely to respond. Or you also went to payers uh, for a while. Uh, Or I don't know if you still do. Um, What were the payers getting out of this? Right. So we were so early in the whole big data and AI thing and as we sort of got tapped on the shoulder, first by pharma commercial is first Biogen around um, Avenex and and the creation of treatment algorithms and then Medco and then uh, working with Aetna, developing a metabolic syndrome platform that they still use today for self-insured employers and the wellness area. We were, we were solving the problem of can you better predict who high-risk members are going to be? Can you predict... Uh, which which interventions are going to work for which members, and can you even predict which physicians what 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 sort of patterns of practice are going to lead to better outcomes, lower total cost of care? So we we were going to solving those big key problems for payers. We don't do any of that anymore. We don't do anything with the commercial side of pharma, and we do not uh, work in just a fee for service way with pharma anymore. And this was the change that really occurred in in the rebranding of the company from GNS, GNS Healthcare, to ATIA, um, which really first started with a focus on specific diseases and creating digital twins from multiomic human data. And we launched that really initiative back in 2020, right as the pandemic was kicking off, starting in multiple myeloma and then going to prostate cancer and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But then over the last 
let's say six to 12 months, uh, we, we were the company really started moving more and more in the direction of, of generating its own drug discovery uh, uh, programs. And over the last six months, that got solidified as John Maganori came on as chair of our board, as we uh, realized that partnerships with preclinical CROs could enable us to extend our reach, to close the loop of what lab validation ourselves, not just depend on our pharma partners for that. And that we could also create our own um, drug candidates, or at least early chemical or biological matter against these breakthrough targets we are now starting to discover again and again and validate again and again, completely unprecedented biology that was cross-validating across multiple human-derived digital twins. And so that all led to the rebranding of the company to Atia. Okay, so this is a pretty big strategic shift here. Um, you're um, you're going to become a drug discovery and and maybe even drug development organization with more wet lab capability. Uh, you've decided there's a lot of things you're not going to do anymore, and you're going to go all in on these predictive models to help guide drug discovery for yourselves and for your partners. Is is that the birth of Atia? Um, that is correct. Um, that we look, I was hesitant and resistant to making this move, even going back four or five years ago. We were approached by heads of RD of a few pharma companies and various VCs who knew us and were had sort of confidence in the technology versus some of just the newer companies that were popping up here and there. And they saw us as having proven technology. But the reason why. You know, I was resistant to making that move four or five years ago is drug discovery is its own world, its own sport, whether small molecules or big molecules. We knew nothing about it. We had our work cut out for us in building these transformative platforms of digital twins for multi-omic human data and causal AI. And so I was of the belief that um, we needed to stick to our knitting because we also just, we didn't have enough data. then to really transform and change the probabilities of success and really get to that much deeper understanding of the mechanisms of disease biology. And so we did not pull the trigger on that move four or five years ago. And even in the last 12 to 18 months, still resistant to that, even as uh, pharma was inking these multi-hundred million dollar deals with other AI drug discovery companies. And and so- So what changed? Uh, Why did you uh, change your mind? So what pushed me um, and what pushed the company and even uh, pushed the board was, one, the realization that we didn't have to take on all the wet lab stuff ourselves inside of our own four walls, that we could partner with preclinical CROs to to now um, uh, validate our discoveries and create early chemical matter without having to 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 do do all that in health. So that was one big big fact, and and two realizing that in order to control the intellectual property of our discoveries, in order to capture the value, um, could we do it just staying on the side of discovering breakthrough drug targets? My 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 optimism for that eventually kind of gave way to the realism that. We needed to control the process. We needed to show that end-to-end 
And in order to really um, drive the kind of uh, deals and partnerships with pharma we wanted to do to now take these discoveries forward. And, and certainly uh, with the experience and encouragement of, of someone who's been there and done that a number of times and John Magnori, um, that was really enough for us to, um, to cross the Rubicon and become the newest AI-driven drug discovery company uh, at the same time being really the first AI company in the space. And so that was our, our long run to get to where we are today with, I think, the most disruptive and most kind of validated technology being brought to bear. And, and the fact that we're, we're kind of starting from human multiomics, not animal models, not cell lines, not iPSC cells, and certainly not the scientific literature. And when you combine that rich data with truly causal AI and simulation technology at this scale, because we've been scaling the platform all these years. I mean, the scale is many orders of magnitude beyond where we started. And so while we're, you know, we're not making as much noise and news as chat GPT and generative AI and large language models, um, the innovations happening in the space are huge, not just us, also academic partners and other academics okay. in the space. So your your decision is to become a drug discovery company. You're going to have intellectual property around the molecules themselves, the whether it's small molecules or biologics. That's where a lot of your value is going to be. You're going to hold on to that and and uh, for a while anyway, license it out. Maybe work with a partner uh, in certain cases. But this is this is a new business strategy, building that, that off. Is of Building off of your your history and all of that accumulated knowledge and know-how um, with the models, the predictive models. Um, that is correct. And, and to be clear, the models aren't just predictive. They're causal. They're explanatory. They're mechanistic. Um, the roots of the company haven't changed, but we're going a couple of branches higher up in the tree and specifically in neurodegenerative disorders and cardiovascular, cardiometabolic diseases, that's where we're initiating our own pipelines. Okay. You mentioned this concept of the digital twin. Can you come back to that and explain what do you mean by that? What is that, a digital twin? Yeah. So a digital twin, and the concept has been around for some time and even it derives from other industries. So in, in Silicon Valley, in the, in the semiconductor industry, they make digital twins of the computer chips so that they can optimize the chip design computationally at a scale and speed that you just couldn't do physically. And that's 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 a, a standard way things operate. The same is true in the aerospace industry in terms of jet engines, right? Why are we so comfortable flying all over the place? It's because these computer models of airplanes and of jet engines have been tested billions of times in all sorts of scenarios. And we we have not had that in the world of of biopharma until now. Yeah, when, so, when Boeing runs a test flight, it's a mere formality. They know it's going to fly under all these different circumstances based on the computer models. That's right. That is right. And the and you could say, look, the complexity of those systems and of a computer chip, it's big. It's more than the number of genes and interactions we have in our cells and our in our tissue. And so why can't we predict it? And of course, the answer is we don't have the blueprint, right? God didn't hand us a blueprint to use in case we ever got sick. And so we've only been piecing together this blueprint 
um, really gene by gene, protein by protein for the last 70, 80 odd years. And we are still at the starting point for the most part. And we're lucky if we know 5% of that circuitry. And so a digital twin, a Gemini digital twin, as we define it, are now a computational representation of disease that's capturing a, a critical mass of the genetic and molecular interactions that are driving clinical outcomes. That's what a digital twin is. So other people mean different things by it. Our digital twins are molecular. They're from the genes up. And that's why they are so, so powerful is because they now have the ability to both predict and explain why to, to, to predict and discover completely novel targets that no one's ever seen before and to do this computationally, right? Some now, of the is this a generic standard model for something like multiple myeloma or Parkinson's based on uh, you know, an average of, of patients? Or is this like capturing patient-level data and predicting uh, whether something will work for an individual patient based yes. on their own samples? Yes, a great question. So the, these, these digital twins are at the level of individual patients. So the, the, the genetic and molecular and demographic variation uh, defines patient by patient by patient. And so these are these, these, these digital twins really are at that level of resolution, and that's, that's a key part of their, of their power. Okay, so is this part of what you would say you're doing that's different from the other um, AI for drug discovery companies that have been out there um, making a lot of noise for the last, say, five years? Uh, yes, no one else in the space is directly reverse engineering the, the hidden circuitry of disease straight from human, human, not, not, not stem cells, not animal models, straight from human multiomic tissue, right? And, and getting all the way to mechanisms. And so this is absolutely what distinguishes ATIA from every other company on the planet and from those, the couple of uh, biopharma companies that are attempting to sort of roll their own in terms of causal approaches. So you've got your access to samples, whether it be multiple myeloma or, or these other disease areas. This is where your history of partnerships People are willing to um, hand over these precious samples for you to generate all the data you need to feed your model? Well, well to be specific, we uh, normally, uh, the partnerships involve the actual molecular and multiomic data. So our partners are, 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 are doing the profiling from the samples, and then we work with them to get access to the data to now build and reverse engineer these digital twins. We've struck over 20 of these partnerships, and we have a very active effort of adding more of these uh, partnerships for multiomic human data. Now, what sort of early results do you have from these partnerships that, that give you the confidence like that you're going to have, hopefully, a, a higher probability of success? Yeah. So one of the examples that I think is very characteristic of what we're doing here is in the area of Alzheimer's. And in Alzheimer's, and we we initially even started off these efforts with uh, working with a couple of pharma companies, first Janssen, then Merck, but now we've taken this well, 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 well further on our own. And this is now building digital twins 
from several different multiomic human data sets. One is longitudinal blood. It's the ADNI data set. Another is AMP-AD, which is post-mortem brain tissue. And now a third is AN merge. And then a fourth that is now, now starting is actually the, the gap biohermes data. But we've already now made digital twins from those first three. And then we use these digital twins to simulate knockdowns, to simulate CRISPR or siRNA knockdowns across the whole, the whole, uh, the whole sets of models to discover novel targets that were affecting one or more uh, clinical outcomes in, in a significant way. And so we discovered a number of targets from each of these three different digital twins from different organs and different patients. And lo and behold, the amount of overlap we saw with some of these novel targets between all three digital twins was mind-blowing, truly mind-blowing. And some of these targets, when you go and look to see where they are relative to some of the known components, some of these were just directly upstream of some of the tau proteins hiding in plain sight some of these directly impacting APOE4 and lipid transport and lipid metabolism. And, um, and then when one of our partners then went and did some experiments in knocking down some of these predicted targets, uh, a number of them, a number of the key ones validated in very specific preclinical systems. And so, and, and what I'd want to emphasize here is before that preclinical experiment was done, we had very high confidence because the chances of causal AI is very oriented against false positives. It's more likely to miss something that's there than to discover something that's not there, unlike deep learning and correlative methods. And so when we discovered the same target in three different human-derived digital twins, we knew there was no way that this was not going to be the real deal. So this um, model is less likely to point you into a dead end or give you some kind of false confidence in what amounts to just a correlation, a bystander effect, just send you down some cul-de-sac, which the AI has done <laughs> in, in, in other uh, hands. That, that, that's, that's exactly correct. And the, the causal methods, it's a much higher bar for an assertion because you're, 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 now, you're now asking questions of, does 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 it do does A and B drive C? Not just is it correlated with, but is it is there evidence for causality? And when you You're do this on a this, very large scale, this is being proven out in the hands of your partners in uh, in animal models or um, in in patient tissue samples. Um, so both in in vitro, in other cases, it has been done in animal models and in patient samples. But the thing I'd emphasize, Luke, is. Preclinical systems, especially for neurodegenerative disorders, have been inherently limited, right? Let's just say. I mean, that, that's that's an overstatement. And so while we, we do conduct these types of experiments and run these assays, the fact that we are, are cross-validating these discoveries in multiple human-derived systems puts makes me um moves us to really the the, the viewpoint of that's that validation in my mind is stronger than validation in an animal model. We don't have good animal models for Alzheimer's. And so while the world and the FDA is not ready to just not use preclinical you know, systems, and of course we are using preclinical systems to add more evidence to our discoveries, we believe that the real weight of evidence 
was already arrived at when we started to cross-validate these discoveries in three different completely independent human um, uh, human populations. So you're gaining confidence and now you're going um, all in on this drug discovery business model. Um, you mentioned that John Mariganori joined your board um, not too long ago as chairman. Yes. What's yes. one piece, is this like a big piece of advice that he's offered to you and, and helped you, you know, navigate this uh, repositioning of the company? A hundred percent. I mean, who who can you name on the planet who has had a um, better track record in discovering new drugs and bringing new drugs through trials to market from platform technologies than John, right? Whether it was when he was at Biogen or involved at Millennium and then certainly in uh, at at El Nylum and uh, and look the 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 founders of Regeneron may be in the same uh, class but there aren't there aren't really that many others so so yep. John's advice and guidance has been invaluable here and even as we've gone down this path we also were forced to to focus and say where are we going to create our own pipeline versus where are we just going to partner out from the, the 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 targets and the digital twins from the beginning. And so we have prioritized neurodegenerative disorders and cardiometabolic diseases as where we're creating our own pipeline to now partner the the uh the the early stage uh chemical matter um likely before pre-IND, certainly at the beginning. And then oncology and immunology is where we partner right away at the level of the digital twins and the and the discoveries of the novel targets, like the deal we announced two weeks ago with Servier in pancreatic cancer, which we're very happy about because pancreatic cancer is such a horrible disease and Servier has been great at making advances in these nearly impossible to treat cancers, as was seen by the data they released at ASCO on Sunday in glioblastoma, which was absolutely stunning and 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 heartwarming. Yeah, so you're going to continue to work with partners in certain therapeutic areas and then have some areas like neurodegeneration that um, you're going to hold on to yourself for a while longer, hold on to more of the value. Yes. Um, so you're going to diversify your, your risk profile across these areas. Um, wh what's uh, the big milestone <laughs> in front of you in the next year or two? Like, um, I, I would imagine like actual proof from, you know, a predictive, one of your predictive models making up from the digital twin, making a prediction, and then having that borne out in a prospective clinical trial in patients. That's that's absolutely right. We have several drug targets in a number of these diseases in Alzheimer's and Huntington's, even in multiple myeloma that we have huge confidence in. And so real validation to me will be uh, where we now have molecules moving through preclinical studies and then ultimately getting, um, and likely through partnerships, getting to clinical POC. That is what we're, 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 we're deadly uh, focused on and what we believe will, will happen over the next few years. And I think it will open the floodgates to more and more of, of, of these, of, of, of discoveries from these approaches, from these platforms. AI means a lot of different things. Multiomic data means a lot of different things. This was always the right sort of AI framework and technology to bring to bear 
from the right kind of data, that being data from humans, to solve the problem. If you could make, wave a magic wand and say, if we could only have a system that could essentially replicate human biology from the genes up on the computer such that we could perform experiments in a massive high throughput way, just like the way that Intel does these digital twin experiments around their computer chips or Boeing does experiments around their jet engines. Um, this is what it would be. That's exactly what ATIA has built. And, and we were limited by multi-omic data from humans for a long, long time. That limitation is going away very quickly. We got the timing wrong, but now that data is coming and it's coming very fast. We're all familiar with not just the disease-specific data of this kind, but things like UK Biobank and FinGen and Finland. We The world's going to be awash in multi-omic human data very, very soon. Um, and it will drive the kind of big breakthroughs that were predicted, frankly, upon the sequencing of the human genome. And of course, those discoveries, it's a long time coming, but it's not that those that optimism was wrong back in 2000, 2001, just that the timing was off. Right. But that data explosion, it's here. All those different levels of data that you reference, it's here, um, and and we're grappling with that capacity to analyze it, uh, and put it in its proper context. You mentioned earlier uh, the the GPT three and four. There's been lots of uh, public attention around this the last few months. You sounded maybe a little unimpressed. Uh, what do you what are your impressions of uh, the the generalized AI that's out there in the wild now, and and how useful that might be in the hands of the biopharma industry? Yeah. Look, look, I to be clear, I, I think the developments in generative AI and chat GPT-4 are fantastic, right? I think they're fantastic in their context, right? It's learning from human knowledge. It's learning from the internet. And within that space, it's doing amazing things. And it's either telling us that humans weren't that interesting and smart and creative to begin with, or it's just simply amazing that it's able to do things that that we thought were the were, were were our domain. For people that have been in AI for a long time, and people like me who are in the camp of have been in the camp of strong AI, meaning that we believe you know humans are wet computers. Um, I would say it's not so surprising that we have Chat GPT four, right? And and one could say. Hmm. I thought it was. I thought it was going to be here earlier, and that is now computers reasoning in the world in the world of existing knowledge, right? So it's like it's like NLP, natural language processing on steroids. Fantastic. What I really care about, and what I'm really interested in, is AI to discover new knowledge that humans can't do, and we're dealing with systems. How many components do we have in our in our, in our bodies on a molecular level? Tens of thousands of genes, hundreds of thousands of interconnections, you know, a, a billion different, uh, billions of different base pairs. And so here we're talking about, can we discover new knowledge? Can we discover what's connected to what, what's causing these diseases? We don't even know what's really driving Alzheimer's disease, for God's sake. And so can you plug that question into ChatGPT? You can, we have. Um, it tells you what's known in the literature. That's nice. We are exploring more sophisticated uses of large language models to better define endpoints, to better uh, group variables. And we're going to look for some game-changing applications of it. But 
if LLMs are going to play a big role here, I think we're going to be the first to exploit it. But I think it's going to be in a marriage with causal approaches. If it's drawing on the scientific literature, that's often incomplete and uh, misleading in some cases. It doesn't have all the raw data. I mean, these systems, they, they depend on the data, the underlying data that you feed it in the first place, that it's high quality, that it's integrated, like we talked about earlier. Um, and so, um, I mean, this is something that we've I've talked about with other uh, AI for drug discovery companies. You've got to start with the quality data and, and link it. Um, in order to get you to uh, any sort of um, insights that are useful for yeah. for new therapeutics, yeah, no, um, that 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 yeah, that that that's right, Luke. And I do want to emphasize: look, I'm I'm friends with the founders and CEOs of some of the other AI companies. I applaud what they're doing. Um, I just think our framework and our uh, approach to this has some inherent advantages, um, and then I'm sure we're also missing some things too. Well, what you know, you you mentioned your co-founder Aya Khalil. She left a few years ago. Go over to Novartis, and now I think she's at Merck. Um, so she's working on you know uh, implementing some of the various systems that are out there to try to improve what Merck does now for in its drug discovery. Have you stayed in touch with her, and and has that um, uh, helped uh, you think about like solving the most relevant problems uh, for large pharma? Uh, ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, Aya and I worked together for. 20 years. And even before that, we were just friends in grad school. So that, 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 that connection will always, uh, uh, be, be deep and strong. And we actually, her and I actually had lunch just a couple of weeks ago and look, she's thrilled about the, 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 the path we've taken about the rebranding and our efforts now to launch drug discovery programs. And in fact, look, Aya was a big part Four or five years ago, when we were tempted in doing this, I was a big part of pushing that. Uh, uh, frankly, so she um, now, with her experience inside of two of the biggest and best pharma companies, she's kind of that much more convinced that this is the right path to go down in uh, in creating molecules from the breakthrough technology. And so, no, she's she's our she's our biggest cheerleader. And you know, I'm a I'm a huge fan of hers. I'm a big cheerleader of what she's doing. I think she's the she's the best uh, AI leader uh, we have in the uh, in the industry. She has the she has the experience and the scar tissue. Last thing I want to ask you, Colin. Those first twenty years, we've covered it. Um, you've got some battle scars. Uh, it took a lot of resilience, uh, determination, fortitude. Uh, to get to a point of uh, greater possibility. What, do, do you have a prediction for the next 20 years in terms of how um, uh, useful the tools of AI are going to be? Uh, are we going to get to a place where um, we no longer expect one out of every 10 drugs that enters clinical trials to, to be a success? We're going to do a lot better? We will absolutely do a lot better. Um, we will cure some diseases. I don't use that word lightly or easily. I try to avoid using that. But we will end up with very effective therapies for a lot of diseases that we struggle with today. These systems, they're complex. They're very complex. They're interconnected, but they're not infinitely complex. Like I come from a tribe of people, and I don't mean Antiguans and Canadians. I come from a tribe of people called physicists and complex system scientists that have 
uh, created and applied technology and mathematics and data to solve very complex systems in other domains. And it will work here. There's not um, special, I mean, there's, there's not just a ghost in the machine that's going to keep us from unraveling the true complexity of human disease. We will get there. These systems are fascinating. They're, they're, they're layer upon layer of complexity, um, but the code will be broken. It will be broken enough such that we will very much change the discovery and clinical development paradigm, and we will change how uh, patients are treated. And we will look back on where we are today and think, oh my God, I can't believe we just didn't know X, Y, and Z. And so I look forward to that, Luke, and and I, it, it will take a village. It will take all of us. We are not trying to do it on our own. We very much will be looking to depend on our big pharma partners to take these drugs into the clinic and to market. We depend on our data partners to keep on providing that data. We depend on our CRO partners to 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 develop uh, the molecules uh, uh, against our our targets on our behalf and. And we depend on the patients for it's it's their it's their data that's uh, that's powering this up. It'll happen. It's a matter of time. Uh, matter of time. Whether it's ten years or twenty years, or hopefully within our lifetime, or or, or even five years, I think we're going to see some pretty dramatic changes. Awesome, Colin Hill. Thank you so much for joining me on the long run. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to the Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.